Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a margarita. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a white Russian, and on this week's episode, we'll be diving into the unsolved murders attributed to the Zodiac Killer. This still unidentified killer is believed to be responsible for numerous killings in Northern California in the 1960s. The first murders widely attributed to the Zodiac Killer were the shootings of high school students Mary Lou Jensen and David Arthur Faraday. On December 20th, 1968, on Lake Herman Road, just inside the city limits of Benicia, the couple were on their first date and planned to attend a Christmas concert at Hogan High School, about three blocks from Jensen's home. They visited a friend before stopping at a local restaurant and driving out to Lake Herman Road, a popular area for young adults. At about 10.15 p.m., Faraday parked his mother's Rambler in a gravel turnout, which was a well-known lover's lane. Shortly after 11 p.m., their bodies were found by Stella Borges, who lived nearby. The Solano County Sheriff's Department investigated the crime, but no leads developed. In a 1976 account, it is suspected that another car pulled into the turnout just prior to 11 p.m. and parked beside the couple. The killer may have exited the second car and walked towards the Rambler, possibly ordering the couple out of it. It appeared that Jensen had exited the car first, but when Faraday was halfway out, the killer shot him in the head. The killer shot Jensen five times in the back as she fled. Her body was found 28 feet from the car. The killer drove off after this. Just before midnight on July 4th, 1969, Darlene Farron and Michael Magoo drove into the Blue Rock Springs Park in Vallejo and Park. It is four miles from the Lake Herman Road murder site. While the couple sat in Farron's car, a second car drove into the lot and parked alongside them, but almost immediately drove away. Returning about 10 minutes later, the second car parked behind them. The driver of the second car exited and approached the passenger side door of Farron's car, carrying a flashlight and a 9mm Luger. The killer directed the flashlight into Magoo's and Farron's eyes before shouting at them, firing five times. Both victims were hit and several bullets passed through Magoo and into Farron. The killer walked away from the car, but returned and shot each victim twice more before driving off. On July 5, 1969, at 12.40 a.m., a man phoned the Vallejo Police Department to report and claim responsibility for the attack. The caller also took credit for the murders of Jensen and Faraday six and a half months earlier. Police traced the call to a phone booth at a gas station at Springs Road and Tumalin, located about three-tenths of a mile from Farron's home and a few blocks from the Vallejo Police Department. Farron was pronounced dead at the hospital. Magoo survived the attack despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. He described his attacker as a 26 to 30 year old, 195 to 200 pound, or possibly even more, five foot eight inch white male with short, light brown curly hair. On August 1st, 1969, three letters purportedly prepared by the killer were received at the Vallejo Times Herald, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the San Francisco Examiner. 
The nearly identical letter subsequently described by a psychiatrist who had been written by, quote, someone you would expect to be brooding and isolated, end quote, took credit for the shootings at Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs. Each letter also included one-third of a 408-symbol cryptogram, which the killer claimed contained his identity. The killer demanded they be printed on each paper's front page, or he would, quote, cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend, end quote. The Chronicle published its third of the cryptogram on page four of the next day's edition. An article printed alongside the code quoted Vallejo Police Chief Jack E. Stilts as saying, quote, we're not satisfied that the letter was written by the murderer, end quote, and requested the writer send a second letter with more facts to prove his identity. On August 7th, 1969, the San Francisco Examiner received a letter with the salutation, quote, Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking, end quote. This was the first time the killer had used this name for identification. The letter was a response to Chief Stilt's request for more details that would prove he had killed Faraday, Jensen, and Farron. In it, the Zodiac included details about the murders that had not yet been released to the public. He also said that when the police cracked his code, quote-unquote, they will have me. On August 8, 1969, Donald and Betty Hardin of Salinas, California, cracked the 408-symbol cryptogram. It contained a misspelled message in which the killer seemed to reference the most dangerous game. The author also said that he was collecting slaves for his afterlife. No name appears in this decoded text. The killer said that he would not give away his identity because it would slow down or stop his slave collection. On September 27, 1969, Pacific Union College students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were picnicking at Lake Berryessa on a small island connected by a sand spit to Twin Oak Ridge. A white man, about 5 feet 11 inches, weighing more than 170 pounds, approached them wearing a black executioner's type hood with clip-on sunglasses over the eye holes and a bib-like device on his chest that had a white 3 by 3 inch cross circle symbol on it. He approached them with a gun, which Hartnell believed to be a 45. The hooded man claimed to be an escaped convict from a jail with a two-word name in either Colorado or Montana. A police officer later inferred that the man had been referring to a jail in Deer Lodge, Montana, where he had killed a guard and subsequently stolen a car. He said that he needed their car and money to travel to Mexico because the stolen vehicle was quote-unquote too hot. The killer had brought pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline and told Shepard to tie up Hartnell before he tied her up. The killer checked and tightened Hartnell's bonds after discovering that Shepard had bound Hartnell's hands loosely. Hartnell initially believed this event to be a bizarre robbery, but the man drew a knife and stabbed them both repeatedly. Hartnell suffered six and Shepard ten wounds in the process. The killer hiked 500 yards up to Knoxville Road, drew the cross circle symbol on Hartnell's car door with a black felt tip pen, and wrote beneath it, Vallejo, 12 2068 7469 September 27th 6939 by knife At 7:40 p.m. the killer called the Napa County Sheriff's office from a paid telephone to report this latest crime. The killer first stated to the operator that he wished to quote report a murder. No, 
a double murder, end quote, before saying that he had committed the crime. KVON radio reporter Pat Stanley found the phone still off the hook a few minutes later at the Napa car wash on Main Street in Napa. It was a few blocks from the sheriff's office and 27 miles from the crime scene. Detectives lifted a still wet palm print from the telephone but were never able to match it to any suspect. After hearing the victim's screams for help, a man and his son fishing in a nearby cove discovered the couple and got help by contacting park rangers. Napa County Sheriff's Detectives Dave Collins and Ray Land were the first law enforcement officers to arrive at the crime scene. Shepard was conscious when Collins arrived and provided him with a detailed description of the attacker. Hartnell and Shepard were taken to Queen of the Valley Hospital in Napa by ambulance. Shepard lapsed into a coma during transport, never regained consciousness, and died two days later. Hartnell survived to account his tale to the press. Napa County Detective Ken Narlo, who was assigned to the case from the outset, worked on solving the crime until his retirement from the department in 1989. Two weeks later, on October 11, 1969, a white male passenger entered the cab driven by Paul Stein at the intersection of Mason and Gary Streets in San Francisco, requesting to be driven to Washington and Maple Streets in Prodesio Heights. For reasons unknown, Stein drove one block past Maple to Cherry Street. The passenger shot Stein once in the head with a 9mm handgun, took the driver's wallet and car keys, and tore away a section of his bloodstained shirt tail. Three teenagers across the street at 9.55 p.m. saw the incident and phoned the police while the crime was still in progress. They observed the man wiping the cab down before walking away towards Prestito, one block to the north. Two blocks from the crime scene, patrol officers Don Fruk and Eric Zelms responding to the call observed a white man walking along the sidewalk east on Jackson Street and stepping onto a stairwell leading up to the front yard of one of the homes on the north side of the street. The encounter lasted only five to ten seconds. Fook estimated the white male pedestrian to be 35 to 45 years old, 5 feet 10 inches tall with a crew cut similar to but slightly older and taller than the description provided by the teenagers who observed the killer in and out of Stein's cab. The teenagers described the suspect to be 25 to 30 years old with a crew cut and standing approximately 5 foot 8 inches tall to 5 foot 9 inches tall. However, the police radio dispatcher had alerted officers to look out for a black suspect, so Fook and Zelms drove so Fook and Zelms drove past the perpetrator without stopping. The mix-up in descriptions remains unexplained. A search ensued, but no suspects were found. This was the last officially confirmed murder by the Zodiac Killer. The Stein murder was initially believed to be a routine robbery that had escalated into homicidal violence. However, on October 13th, the San Francisco Chronicle received a new letter from Zodiac that claimed credit for the killing and contained a torn section of Stein's bloody shirt to, quote unquote, prove this fact. The three teen witnesses worked with a police artist to prepare a composite sketch of Stein's killer. A few days later, this police artist returned, working with the witnesses to prepare a second composite sketch. Detectives Bill Armstrong and Dave Toshi were assigned to the case. The San Francisco Police Department investigated an estimated 2,500 suspects over a period of years. 
Zodiac continued to communicate with authorities for the remainder of 1970 via letters and greeting cards to the press. In a letter postmarked April 20th, 1970, the Zodiac wrote, quote, my name is blank, end quote, followed by a 13 character cipher that has not been solved to this day. Zodiac sent a greeting card postmarked April 28, 1970 to the Chronicle. Written on the card was, quote, I hope you enjoy yourselves when I have my blast, end quote, followed by the Zodiac's cross circle signature. On the back of the card, the Zodiac threatened to use the bus bomb soon unless the newspaper published the full details that he had written. He also wanted to start seeing people wearing some quote unquote nice Zodiac buttons. On October 27, 1970, Chronicle reporter Paul Avery, who had been covering the Zodiac case, received a Halloween card signed with a letter Z and the Zodiac's crossed circle symbol. Handwritten inside the card was the note, quote, peekaboo, you are doomed, end quote. The threat was taken seriously and was the subject of a front page story in the Chronicle. After the Lake Tahoe card, the Zodiac remained silent for nearly three years. The Chronicle then received a letter from the Zodiac postmarked January 27, 1974, praising The Exorcist as, quote, the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen, end quote. The letter included a snippet of verses from the Mikado and an unusual symbol at the bottom that has remained unexplained by researchers. Zodiac concluded the letter with a new score, quote, me, 37, San Francisco Police Department, zero, end quote. There is no consensus on the number of victims that the Zodiac had or the length of his criminal spree. Although the Zodiac claimed in letters to newspapers to have committed 37 murders, investigators agree on seven confirmed assault victims, five of whom died and two who survived. Now let's look at some of the people who are suspected to be the Zodiac killer. The two main suspects are Arthur Lee Allen and Gary Francis Post. Arthur Lee Allen. Allen had been interviewed by police from the early days of the Zodiac investigation and was the subject of several search warrants over a 20-year period. On October 6, 1969, Allen was interviewed by Detective John Lynch of the Vallejo Police Department. Allen had been reported in the vicinity of the Lake Berryessa attack on Hartnell and Shepard on September 27, 1969. He described himself scuba diving at Salt Point on the day of the attack. Allen again came to police attention in 1971 when his friend Donald Cheney reported to police in Manhattan Beach, California, that Allen has spoken of his desire to kill people, used the name Zodiac, and secured a flashlight to a firearm for visibility at night. According to Cheney, this conversation occurred no later than January 1st, 1969. Two days after Allen's death in 1992, Vallejo police served another warrant and seized property from his residence. In July 1992, victim Mike Bagu identified Allen as the man who shot him in 1969 from a photo lineup saying, quote, that's him. It's the man who shot me, end quote. However, Police officer David Fuke, who is suspected to have seen the Zodiac fleeing from the Stein killings, said in a 2007 documentary, his name was Arthur Lee Allen, that Allen weighed about 100 pounds more than the man he saw, adding that his face was quote-unquote too round. 
Nancy Sauver, who received the call from the Zodiac in the aftermath of the Magoo Farron shooting, said that Allen did not sound like the man on the phone. Other evidence existed against Allen, albeit entirely circumstantial. A letter sent to the Riverside Police Department from Bates' killer was typed with a royal typewriter with an elite type, the same brand found during the February 1991 search of Allen's residence. He owned and wore a Zodiac brand wristwatch. He lived in Vallejo and worked minutes away from where one of the Zodiac victims, Farron, lived and from where one of the killings took place. Next, we'll look at Gary Francis Post. In October 2021, the Casebreakers, claiming to be a team of over 40 cold case investigators composed of former law enforcement investigators, military intelligence officers, and journalists, claimed to have identified the Zodiac Killer as Gary Francis Post, who died in 2018 at the age of 80. The team claimed to have uncovered forensic evidence and photos from Post's darkroom and noted that scars on Post's forehead matched those they said were described on the killer. They also claimed that removing the letters of Post's name from one of the Zodiac's cryptograms revealed an alternate message. The FBI subsequently stated that the case remained open and that there is, quote, no new information to report, end quote. While local law enforcement expressed skepticism to the Chronicle regarding the team's findings, Riverside Police Officer Ryan Railsbeck said the casebreakers' claims largely relied on circumstantial evidence, and author Tom Voigt, a Zodiac killer investigator, called the claims, quote-unquote, bullshit. Voigt noted that no witnesses in the case described Zodiac as having scars on his forehead. There have been other people suspected of being the Zodiac killer. Retired police detective Steve Hodell argues in his book, The Black Dahlia Avenger, that his father, George Hodell, was the 1947 Black Dahlia killer, whose victims include Elizabeth Short. The book led to the release of previously suppressed files and wire recordings by the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office of his father, which showed that the elder Hodell had been indeed a prime suspect in Short's murder. District Attorney Steve Kay subsequently wrote a letter which is published in the revised edition stating that if George Hodel were still alive, he would be prosecuted for the crimes. In a follow-up book, Hodel argued a circumstantial case that his father was also the Zodiac Killer, based upon a police sketch. The similarity of the style of the Zodiac letters to the Black Dahlia Avenger letters and questioned document examination. Police informants accused Richard Marshall of being the Zodiac Killer, claiming that he privately hinted at being a murderer. Marshall lived in Riverside in 1966 and San Francisco in 1969, close to the scenes of the Bates and Stein murders. He was a silent film enthusiast and projectionist, screening Segundo de Chamon's The Red Phantom, a name used by the author of a possible 1974 Zodiac letter. Detective Ken Narlo said that, quote, Marshall makes good reading, but is not a very good suspect in my estimation, end quote. The next suspect is Robert Evans Nichols, also known as Joseph Newton Chancellor III. And he was a formerly unidentified identity theft who committed suicide in East Lake, Ohio in July 2002. After his death, investigators were 
unable to locate his family and discovered that he had stolen the identity of an eight-year-old boy who was killed in a car crash in Texas in 1945. The lengths to which Nichols went to hide his identity led to speculation that he was a violent fugitive. The U.S. Marshals Service announced his identification at a press conference in Cleveland, on June 21st, 2018, some internet sleuths suggested that he might have been the Zodiac killer as he resembled police sketches of the Zodiac and had lived in California where the Zodiac operated. In February 2014, it was reported that Lewis Joseph Myers had confessed to a friend in 2001 that he was a Zodiac killer after learning that he was dying from cirrhosis of the liver. He requested that his friend Randy Kinney go to the police upon his death. Myers died in 2002, but Kinney allegedly had difficulties getting officers to cooperate and take the claim seriously. There are several potential connections between Myers and the Zodiac case. Myers attended the same high school as victims David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen and allegedly worked in the same restaurant as victim Darlene Farron. During the 1971 to 1973 period, when no Zodiac letters were, were received, Myers was stationed overseas with the military. Kenny said that Myers confessed he targeted couples because he had had a bad breakup with a girlfriend. While officers associated with the case were skeptical, they believe the story is credible enough to investigate if Kenny could produce credible evidence. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Zodiac Killer, and do you have a suspect that you lean towards? It's horrifying to hear about the Zodiac Killer and his crimes and what his victims had to go through. There's really a level, of course, of like of mysteriousness because we don't know who the killer is, but just how cryptic his messages are. Um, it's very creepy. It adds a level of creepiness that isn't, you know, always in serial killings with those letters and the messages left at some crime scenes. And then also hearing how he wore like a bag over his head with glasses. That's really creepy too. I don't like of course, any serial killer, but I really despise killers that are so arrogant and desperate for attention. Like I would say Zodiac is with leaving those messages for the police and just so like desperately wanting to be found because they want that attention and that notoriety, but of course not wanting to be found because then that means they're in jail. It's, it's just makes me so mad to hear. And it's really frustrating in this case too, knowing that the police, I think did almost have this person at least one time. And then the journalist, I think who went to the phone booth right after the call came in, like this person got really lucky. I'm sure that added to the arrogance too. Just really frustrating. I would say I lean more toward, what is his name? Arthur? I lean more towards Arthur Lee Allen. There's a lot of like weird coincidences, I think, with him. If he had spoken about a desire to kill, if he's in the area at this time, if he looked like what one of the victims say, I would like to hear a little bit more about the circumstantial evidence. And, you know, knowing that they found the typewriter in his his home, too, is kind of strange. If it's not Alan out of the people that we talked to, I would say 
Louis Joseph Myers because again of these like weird connections with the victims like going to the same high school as them and I don't know if he was there you know at the same time it doesn't sound like it from the age description we have of the Zodiac knowing probably one of the victims if you work at the same restaurant as them living in the area and then not having the letters because he was in jail I think makes sense or not he wasn't in jail. I think not having the letters because he was in the military makes sense. And maybe they could be more connected to him that way. I do think maybe the confession that he targeted couples because he had a bad breakup with his girlfriend is kind of weak to me, but I would kind of believe that the Zodiac gave a deathbed confession because they did want their identity out there. That cracks to me. I would like to know a little bit more about Gary Francis Post. I mean, if this team of over 40 people is pretty confident, that like is interesting to me, but it seems like people that are more involved in the case don't believe it, which of course gives me pause. But I would like to hear more about their evidence because I remember when this was like a big deal when it first came out, but then we haven't heard anything since then. So... I'm assuming the police probably are not looking into this person. I feel like maybe we would have had some more updates, especially, of course, if there was some more evidence pointing to this man. But I would like to learn a little bit more about that. What do you think, Del? Who who would you have your money on as the killer? Yeah, the Zodiac killer. I mean, honestly, I think in a lot of cases where the serial killer is unidentified. Every suspect, there is some piece of evidence that connects them. And you're like, is that the one? Like, is that the piece of evidence that really could be more conclusive than the other thing? For me, I definitely agree with you that Arthur Allen definitely seems to be the most likely uh, person who is responsible for the Zodiac killings. I mean, just the fact that for 20 years, the police were investigating him definitely adds to that. I think that there are a lot of things that are very suspicious, like the fact that he wanted to make sure that he had a flashlight attached to his firearm and the fact that he was confessing to his friends that he wanted to kill someone. And honestly, for me, the biggest piece of evidence is the fact that one of the victims identified him. You know, he said, that's the man that shot me. And, you know, that goes a long way. I know that eyewitness testimony is not the most reliable, but in some circumstances, when something traumatic is happening to someone, they kind of burn that image into their brain. And I think that's a situation that could definitely have happened. And then, of course, you add the fact that he was there. He was in the vicinity of these crimes. Um, When it comes to the others, while I think that there is, again, strong circumstantial evidence, I just don't think they have as much muster as exists when it comes to Allen. I would say Myers would definitely be a secondary suspect for me. But I do wonder why, you know, this was a deathbed confession. Why not just come out yourself and confess? 
you know, it was definitely a situation where it was unlikely that you were going to be prosecuted anyway. He definitely didn't have a lot of time left. It was about a year in between when he confessed to his friend and when he ultimately died. That definitely wouldn't have been enough time for the police to actually have him in prison if that's what he wanted to avoid. But when it comes to broadly the Zodiac case, I think it's really a kind of amalgamation of several different cases that we've looked at and just serial killers in general where you have that unidentified aspect like the Jack the Ripper case. You have that Lover's Lane connection like the Texarkana case. And you have the weird relationship of sorts that the serial killer has with the media as we've seen in Jack the Ripper and the BTK case. I think that it's always strange when a killer decides to involve the media in their crimes. It definitely really makes you wonder, like, okay, what's going on? Like, as you spoke of, is it an arrogance thing? Is it an attention thing? Is it just, I don't want to be the only person that knows that I'm doing this. I want to have some braggadocious, some rights. I don't want anyone else to be able to claim that they're me. We saw in some other cases where the serial killer is reaching out to the media where they would get angry if, you know, someone else was being tied to the case. But considering the Zodiac killer's relationship to the media and how they sent letters, I definitely am surprised that, especially if it was going to be a deathbed confession, that they wouldn't have involved the media in some sort of way, whether it was sending a more definitive um, cipher to the police, because we have the one that still hasn't been decoded. But again, I'm just surprised that nothing more definitive came out of that. And of course, it goes without saying that the Zodiac crimes were absolutely horrific and terrible. And, you know, while he doesn't supposedly have the body count as other killers, he's definitely someone that has been ingrained in the public consciousness, similar to other people who have uh, killed multiple people, yet we don't know who they are. The Zodiac killer attacked couples in areas known as Lover's Lane. A lover's lane is a secluded area where people kiss, make out, or engage in sexual activity. These areas range from parking lots in secluded rural areas to places with extraordinary views of a cityscape or other features. Quote-unquote lover's lanes are typically found in cultures built around the automobile. Lovers often make out in a car or van for privacy. The Oxford English Dictionary records use of the phrase lover's lane from 1853. Due to the typically isolated location of most lover's lanes, they have occasionally been the setting for violent crime. Victims of the monster of Florence were couples murdered in lover's lanes near Florence, Italy. A series of unsolved murders and violent crimes in 1946 dubbed the Texarkana Moonlight Murders began with two attacks which targeted couples at Lover's Lanes in the Texarkana area. Similar to the Zodiac Killer, several attacks perpetrated by the Son of Sam serial killer also took place in such settings. Serial killer Charles Barr targeted couples at Lover's Lanes in Memphis, Tennessee in 1923, and he was executed for his crimes in 1926. 
A lover's lane is typically the setting of the urban legend, quote unquote, the hook about a young couple menaced by a hook handed killer. I find them really scary and creepy. I think the thought of being in a vulnerable state when you're attacked is really frightening. I think like sometimes being in a car is it like at night is can be very vulnerable too. So that on top of like intimacy with someone is like extra vulnerable. I don't know if lovers lanes still exist. I haven't really heard of any in a while, but it's an interesting idea and it kind of makes sense for someone that wants to be violent to go there because I mean, it's it's probably more difficult if you have two people, but it makes sense because they're more secluded. There's less likely going to be people around. It's probably easier to sneak up on people, especially if you know, you know, they're not necessarily aware of their surroundings if their mind is on something else. If you want to be probably sexually violent with someone, I think that would be a place to target. I understand why people would target these locations. And I'm, it's funny you mentioned the urban legend about the hook because I we've talked about Weird NJ, the magazine, the book on here several times. And growing up, I remember reading certain stories about, you know, people, there's a legend that so-and-so was killed at the lover's lane in this area and all these different stories. And the hook one is definitely part of it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with you. Lover's lanes, you know, whether they still exist or not, they're definitely kind of ingrained into the true crime American kind of horror stories, so to speak, because of the isolation, because of the just you're like you say, you're in a vulnerable state. And this is also somewhere where you're going for privacy for intimacy. And so the last thing on your mind is that you need to be weary of someone who is using it for more nefarious purposes. I think that, I mean, while it makes sense why people may have used lover's lanes in the past, I definitely don't think they exist as much now because there are different ways that you're able to obtain the same level of privacy uh, without the lack of security that comes with lovers lanes and, you know, other isolated locations. I think we hear more about like the woods as the place that these types of crimes happen in a more modern sense. But when it comes to the urban legend, definitely wanted to include that because one, I love urban legends. You know, it goes along with the love of conspiracies. And yeah, it's no surprise that one of the most famous urban legends takes place in this kind of idyllic but very dangerous location. In his letters, the Zodiac Killer often used cryptograms to hide his true message from the police, the media, and the general public. A cryptogram is a type of puzzle that consists of short pieces of encrypted text. Generally, the cipher used to encrypt the text is simple enough that the cryptogram can be solved by hand. 
Substitution ciphers, where each letter is replaced by a different letter or number, is frequently used. To solve the puzzle, one must recover the original lettering. Though once used in more serious applications, they are now mainly printed for entertainment in newspapers and magazines. The ciphers used in cryptograms were not originally created for entertainment purposes, but for real encryption of military or personal secrets. The first use of cryptogram for entertainment purposes occurred during the Middle Ages by monks who had spare time for intellectual games. A manuscript found at Bromberg states that Irish visitors to the courts of the King of Gwynedd in Wales were given a cryptogram which could only be solved by transposing the letters from Latin into Greek. Around the 13th century, the English monk Roger Bacon wrote a book in which he listed seven cipher methods and stated that, quote, a man is crazy who writes a secret in any other way than one which will conceal it from the vulgar, end quote. In the 19th century, Edgar Allan Poe helped to popularize cryptograms with many newspaper and magazine articles. The Zodiac Killer sent four cryptograms to police while he was still active. Despite much research and many investigations, only two of these have been translated, which was of no help in identifying the killer. One of the most famous examples is Cicada 3301. Cicada 3301 is a nickname given to three sets of puzzles posted under the name 3301 online between 2012 and 2014. This started on January 2nd, 2012 and ran for nearly a month. A second round began one year later on January 4th, 2013, and then a third round following the confirmation of a fresh clue posted on Twitter on January 4th, 2014. The third puzzle has yet to be solved. The stated intent was to recruit quote-unquote intelligent individuals by presenting a series of puzzles to be solved. No new puzzles were published on January 4th, 2015, and a new clue was posted on Twitter on January 5th, 2016. Jenny, what are your thoughts on cryptograms and how killers may use them? I think cryptograms are really fun. I feel like this is like a game like kids play or like, you know, like something to pass the time, like that you're introduced to young. So it's interesting to see how in depth people can get with them and then how some people can use them to, you know, for bad things like the Zodiac killer did. I think when it comes to killers, I think it's a way for them to feel smarter than everyone else. And again, like what we're talking with kind of toying with the like, Oh, who am I? Like, I want to get attention without, you know, revealing my true identity kind of thing. I've never heard of this cicada thing, so I'm going to have to look that up. It sounds interesting. Del, I wanted to ask you, do you think there is meaning in the Zodiac cipher or do you think it was like just for show? That is a great question. I mean, I think it could go both ways. I do think that it was a type of showmanship attached to it, but I also think that 
if the cipher was available, if it was found, that it could unlock some clues to the Zodiacs, like who he was, or at least some type of motivation behind the killings, you know, why he did it. For one of the suspects, when it came to Myers, it was alleged that he may have done it after a failed breakup. While we don't know if that's true or not, I think that the unsolved ciphers for the Zodiac killer could tell us the real reason behind the killings. And by reasons, I do mean how the Zodiac killer justified it in his own head, not saying that there's any reasonable justification for the crimes itself. The Zodiac Killer is officially an unsolved case, though it is also described as a cold case. We are going to dive into cold cases and why, as time goes on, these cases become harder to solve. A cold case is a crime or a suspected crime that has not been fully resolved and is not the subject of a current criminal investigation, but for which new information could emerge from new witness testimony, re-examine archive, new or retained material evidence, or fresh activities of a suspect. Typically, cold cases are violent and other major felonies, such as murder and rape, which, unlike unsolved minor crimes, are generally not subject to a statute of limitations. Sometimes disappearances can also be considered cold cases if the victim has not been seen or heard from for some time, such as the case of Natalie Holloway or the Beaumont children. As of 2020, the total number of cold cases in the United States topped 250,000, according to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reports. More than 6,000 new unsolved murders and abductions are added to that number each year. About 35% of those cases are not cold cases at all. Some cases become instantly cold when a seemingly closed or solved case is reopened due to the discovery of new evidence pointing away from the original suspect. Other cases are cold when the crime is discovered well after the fact, for example, by the discovery of human remains. Some cases become classified cold cases when a case that had been originally ruled an accident or suicide is redesignated as murder when new evidence emerges. Sometimes a case is not solved, but forensic evidence helps to determine that the crimes are serial crimes. The BTK case and original Night Stalker cases are such examples where the crimes were linked prior to the identification of the killers, Dennis Rader and Joseph D'Angelo. With the advent of an improvements to DNA testing and DNA profiling and other forensic technology, many cold cases are being reopened and prosecuted. Police departments are opening cold case units whose job is to re-examine cold case files. DNA evidence helps in such cases, but as in the case of fingerprints, it is of no value unless there is evidence on file to compare it to. However, to combat that issue, the FBI is switching from using the integrated automated fingerprint identification system to using a newer technology called the Next Generation Identification, or NGI. Other improvements in forensics lie in fields such as digital forensics, one application of which is to recover hidden or deleted data, ballistics analysis, which involves the evaluation of ammunition and firearms to determine which weapon might have been used in a crime, forensic anthropology, which analyzes skeletal remains to determine their cause of death or any other relevant information, 
mobile forensics and social media, which since their creation have had increased involvement in any police case, cold or not. Forensic psychology, which can be used to analyze crime scenes and identify suspect profiles. Facial recognition, which has been used to identify suspects based on their facial features. Artificial intelligence, or AI, which is used in all of the above systems to help analyze data and information from crime scenes. Jenny, does the new technology that the FBI is exploring give you hope that most cold cases will be solved, or are there more forensic technology developments that are needed? It does give me a lot of hope. It's interesting to hear about all these different these different systems that they're switching to, most of which I haven't really heard about. I think will make people more confident in the system too, as long as it's being used right. Of course, there is always like a chance of error in certain things. But I think a lot of times people want, people are most convinced by like the hard facts. And I think using these different types of sciences and forensics gives people hard facts that they need to feel confident in someone being a suspect, someone being the perpetrator of a crime, the circumstances that led to a crime, ballistics analysis of the weapon that was used in a crime. I think all of that is really, really fascinating. And I'm kind of excited to see where things go. Of course, I think there are different technologies that could be developed and are needed. I don't know if I can think of anything offhand. I would like to hear more about I mean, mobile forensics, I'm sure that's like someone's phone, but I'm curious about social media forensics and what that involves, because that's not as much like science, I would think. So I'm going to have to do some research into that. What do you think? I agree with you. Forensic science has come a long way in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think that as we understand more about forensics, how people do things, why people do things, I think that it will not only help catch past killers and be able to solve different cold cases, but also make sure that there are limits to the crimes that people are able to commit in the future and how long they're able to get away with it. I think that We always say this when it comes to these older cases that in a lot of ways, one of the reasons that they were able to get away with it was because forensic science didn't exist or wasn't as developed as it is now. And I think that, again, as time goes on, we'll be able to further develop these, be able to make sure that we have a strong scientific backing for all these technologies and be able to use technology to our advantage and the advantage of different police departments, including the FBI, to make sure that we're identifying suspects and putting them away before they can do any further harm to individuals. So I think a good place to wrap it up. Yep. Sounds good. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Zodiac Killer. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Chappaquiddick incident. As always, stay safe.